Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. is We Regret to Inform You, The Rejection Podcast. Nobody would put it on stage. Every producer in London said, you have to be joking. This is the worst idea in history. Andrew Lloyd Webber. One spring day in 1965, a 22-year-old aspiring singer-lyricist named Tim Rice took a bus to South Kensington, London. On the recommendation of an agent, he was given the address of a gifted composer. The agent wanted the pair to meet and collaborate on a project that needed both music and lyrics. So Rice made his way to a lovely red-bricked Victorian building and started up the stairs. But as he approached the top floor flat, he heard brash noises echo down the hall. Then the door swung open and Rice went into sensory overload. There was a lot to take in. In one corner, a man was playing a giant electronic church organ. In another, a woman was teaching a piano lesson. And somewhere in between, a child was blowing a trumpet. Cats roamed about the flat, then a monkey wandered by. But perhaps the most perplexing sight of all 
was the 17-year-old boy who answered the door. Turns out, he was the gifted composer Rice was sent to meet. The teen introduced himself. His name was Andrew Lloyd Webber. And Rice thought, with a name like that, he'll never make it. But let's rewind a little. Andrew Lloyd Webber was practically born with an instrument in his hand. The cast of musical characters in his apartment that day was his family. His father was a respected composer and director of the London College of Music. His mother was a pianist and violinist. And his brother was on the way to becoming a solo cellist and conductor. The monkey remains a question mark. But suffice it to say, their home was always alive with the sound of music. Growing up, Lloyd Webber played the French horn, the violin, and the piano. At age four, he took his first formal music lesson. By six, he was composing operas for his toys. By nine, he published his first piece called The Toy Theater Suite. And in prep school, he wrote his first musical. It was called Westonia. He skipped school to pitch Westonia to theater companies, but was rejected. Evidently, his idea was too over the top. Though one top producer did note the music was, quote, promising for such a youngster. That piece of feedback would sustain his little gifted self for a while. Over the next few years, he'd write eight musicals, plus one pop song. And of that growing body of work, the pop song is what caught the eye of a music label. Lloyd Webber got Make Believe Love recorded. He thought now his career was off and running. It was not. But that pop song did get him introduced to a literary agent named Desmond Elliott. Desmond Elliott represented an up-and-coming author who'd written a book that Elliott thought had the potential for a musical adaptation. It would be called The Likes of Us. But it would need songs. So he asked Lloyd Webber to come up with some options. Within three days, Lloyd Webber came back with a score. But it would need lyrics. Tim Rice was born in Southeast England. His father was a major in the Second World War, and his mother served in the Air Force. From a young age, Rice was a rock and roll fanatic, worshipping at the altars of Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers. By his teen years, he was the lead vocalist in a band called The Aardvarks. He wrote a few songs and recorded a few demos, but those demos would never see the light of day. So Rice decided to shelve his singer-lyricist career and go to law school. But turns out Rice's love of music could not be extinguished. So he decided to sneak into the business through the back door. What if instead of writing songs, he wrote books about the music industry? So Rice approached a literary agent, Desmond Elliott. He told him he had a book idea about pop rock history. Elliot wasn't wowed, but he asked him, what else do you do? Rice played Elliot a little aardvark audio. 
And interestingly, Elliot was intrigued. The lyrics were pretty good. So Elliot told Rice he had a gifted composer working on the score for a musical that needed lyrics, hip lyrics. He scribbled down an address and sent Rice on his way. As author Ellis Nasur tells the story, Tim Rice's first impression of Andrew Lloyd Webber was this. Awkward yet confident, sophisticated yet naive, mature yet childlike, dressed as though he'd just come from a board meeting and clearly from an upbringing that felt more business class than economy. Lloyd Webber's first impression of Rice was a six-foot-something, thin-as-a-rake, blonde bombshell of an Adonis with blue eyes and a public school accent. Lloyd Webber led Rice through the noisy living room to his bedroom, where Rice was overwhelmed for a second time that day. Lloyd Webber's bedroom was a museum of beautiful things. The 17-year-old had his own sitting area, a table of crystal glassware, a concert grand, the largest of the grand piano family, an extensive record collection, and state-of-the-art recording equipment. Lloyd Webber told Rice about the eight musicals he'd written. Rice sort of scoffed. This kid was 17. But when Lloyd Webber took a seat at his concert grand and played him a song from one of those musicals, Rice said, My God, this guy's good. Next, it was Rice's turn. He played Lloyd Webber a demo of a rock song he'd written. And Lloyd Webber gushed over the vocals and lyrics. The pair couldn't have been more different, but it was clear from day one they each respected each other's styles. So they got to the task at hand, the likes of us. Lloyd Webber played Rice the music he'd already composed for the project, and Rice agreed to come back soon with some lyrics. Two days later, Rice was back at the Lloyd Webber residence. He'd come up with lyrics for two songs, one of which Lloyd Webber really liked. Rice used quick rhythm, cultural references, and clever rhyming to tell a story. Lloyd Webber said he knew then and there that he was in the presence of someone who was bold and had an extraordinary way with words. Rice said he knew Lloyd Webber had rare talent and determination. His only concern was their differing genres. Lloyd Webber was a classical composer who wanted to write musicals and was clearly going to take the theater world by storm. Rice said, probably next week. But Rice loved rock and roll. If only there was a way to marry the two. Desmond Elliott was pleased with the music and lyrics the duo came up with. He signed Rice and Lloyd Webber to a publishing contract with a 100-pound advance. And with that, the two began, quote, heaving away on the likes of us. But for Rice in particular, that 100 pounds could only stretch so far. As they heaved away, he'd need income. So he took an internship at music label EMI Records, 
Soon, that internship morphed into an assistant position. Meanwhile, Lloyd Webber enrolled in the prestigious Guildhall School of Music and Drama, studying arranging and orchestration. But he was starting to get concerned. Rice was getting more and more involved in the music business, and less and less with their music hall. But that's when they heard about an unusual gig. The headmaster at St. Paul's Cathedral Prep School in Hammersmith, London, was looking for an end-of-term cantata for his choir. Tim Rice was far from enthused. Mr. Rock and Roll was now writing lyrics for children. How did we get here? But Andrew Lloyd Webber had a thought. What if they wrote a biblical rock musical? And what if it was about Joseph and his coat of many colors? As the story of Joseph goes in the book of Genesis, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, a dreamer and the golden child. Jacob gives his son a coat of many colors, which becomes the object of his brother's jealousy. In a fit of envy, Joseph's brothers take his coat and sell him into slavery in Egypt, convincing their father Joseph was killed by an animal. But it's in Egypt, in prison, that it's discovered Joseph's dreams are omens, and he uses his God-given abilities to save Egypt from impending famine, famine that would soon ravage surrounding lands, including those of his brothers. Hearing Egypt had somehow escaped the fate of the famine, his brothers plead with the Egyptians for supplies. And it's then they discover their brother not only survived their abuse, but became the second most powerful person in Egypt, donning his coat of many colors once again. They are reformed and reunited. The story of Joseph was a favorite of Tim Rice, so he got to jotting down a few lyrics. Rice figured the best way into a child's heart was through laughter. So they decided to write a musical version of the story that wasn't so serious or heavy, but kind of irreverent and fun. Lloyd Webber wasn't as convinced the story should be quite so irreverent, but Rice was persuasive. Rice says every song that came off the Andrew Lloyd Webber conveyor belt sounded like a winner. So together, they wrote 22 songs, including Any Dream Will Do, Jacob and Sons, Close Every Door, and Go, 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 Joseph. Then they had to name their musical. First, they had How to Succeed in Egypt Without Trying. Then, Pal Joseph. Then, Joseph and the Amazing Many-Colored Dreamcoat. But Rice thought they could have a little more fun with that one. So he changed it to... Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Lloyd Webber wasn't so sure about Technicolor, possibly because it was a term coined in the 1940s, not 1700 BC. But Rice was persuasive. The St. Paul's Cathedral Prep School performed the 30-minute play. And unbeknownst to Rice and Lloyd Webber, one of the fathers of one of the children in the play was a prominent journalist, 
So Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat got a little media coverage. Soon, other schools and regional theaters started putting it on. And one night, Lloyd Webber and Rice recorded a performance. What Joseph didn't do was make them a lot of money. What it did do was give them a tangible sample of their collaborative work. So Lloyd Webber took that recording and sent it to a talent agency called New Talent Ventures and quickly got a response saying the talent agents wanted to meet. The talent agents were impressed with Joseph and were prepared to offer Rice and Lloyd Webber a contract to write music, including a weekly stipend and office space, in exchange for a percentage of any money they made off their work. Rice was skeptical. He had a steady job as an assistant at a music label. He was only 24 and working his way up. Lloyd Webber, on the other hand, had no job to worry about, only the, quote, burning conviction that he was the next big thing. Rice said he had no such belief in himself, other than maybe his lightweight ability to amuse. Rice had a lawyer look over the contract, and as his trepidation to sign ran out the clock, the talent agents continued to up their offer. But soon, Rice realized his lawyer bills were piling up. The longer he held out, the more he'd owe in legal fees. Soon, he could no longer afford to not take the deal. So they shook hands, and Rice said in the blink of an eye, he'd switched careers. Now Rice and Lloyd Webber's days would be spent collaborating and writing and planning. Without worrying about other jobs or lining schedules, they had all the time in the world. The problem was, they had nothing to work on. Their only success to date was Joseph. So Rice came up with an idea to do a sort of follow-up to that show, this time about King Richard the Lionheart. So they did. They wrote a production called Come Back Richard, Your Country Needs You. But Rice later said it turned out the country did not, in fact, need them. The show was only performed at one school and wasn't nearly as praised as Joseph. Rice said the speedy demise of Richard the Lionheart must have made their new talent agents nervous. Clearly, they were on the wrong track. He wanted to be writing for adults, not children, to tackle real-life topics. One day, while talking with a local South Kensington priest, Lloyd Webber was thinking out loud about he and Rice's next move. When the priest said, why not do a musical on Christ's life? Lloyd Webber laughed. He said, that would never sell. But the priest disagreed. He said something modern that young people could identify with could be successful. So Lloyd Webber ran the idea by his partner, and Rice had the same initial reaction as he did. No matter what it was, it would be too controversial. So that was that, and they moved on to other things. But it wasn't long before those other things came to dead ends, and the idea crept back into their minds. So they decided to entertain it. What would a musical about Christ even look like? It would have to be delicate, sensitive to the subject matter, but at the same time bold and different in order to sell. 
and they wondered, could you tell the story of Christ through rock and roll? Hold that thought. We'll be right back. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Rice was 15 years old, he had an idea. If he ever one day became a writer, he'd write the story of Judas betraying Jesus, but from Judas's point of view. Why did Judas do what he did? He couldn't help but wonder what he would have done in that situation. Just a few years earlier, Bob Dylan had come out with the lyric, You'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. It was a thought Rice wanted to explore. So they plotted out a story. The story of Christ's last week on earth, as told through the eyes of Judas. Rice says the disloyal apostle wasn't given much attention in the Gospels, so they would be able to, quote, put words in his mouth without fear of being scripturally inaccurate while still being as true to the existing texts as possible. He said they didn't wish to be controversial. They merely wanted to bring Christ down from his stained glass windows and interpret a piece of the story in their own way. But, Rice said, in the back of his mind were concerns. 
Visions of torched Beatles records in America when John Lennon's comments on Jesus were taken out of context. Though, he said the idea of comparing himself to John Lennon, or imagining their work crossing the pond, or merely crossing the Thames, felt silly at the end of the day. So the pair broached the idea with their talent agents, who said, anything, anything but that. One day, the pair saw an ad that showed Tom Jones wearing all white with the word superstar emblazoned across his chest. Rice said it was a completely new word, not at all as popular as it is today, and it stuck with him. Maybe it was a word that one would use to describe Jesus Christ. He knew it might be pushing it a little, but he also knew the reason Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was a success was because they put a contemporary lens on an ancient story. So they got to writing a song. It would be called Superstar. Here's what Lloyd Webber and Rice were thinking. They hoped to get a successful single on the charts that would catch the ear of a West End theater producer and open the doors to a full-staged production. A single would test the waters and let them know if there was any mileage. If reaction to the first song was universally hostile, there was no point in writing an entire show. But first, before any of that could happen, they'd perform Superstar for their friends and family. The feedback ranged from horror to disgust. They were told it was a foolish idea. Religion isn't a commercial subject. Lloyd Webber and Rice performed their tune for their already skeptical talent agents. And to their amazement, their agents' fears melted away. Once they actually heard the song, they loved it and started shopping the idea around to music labels immediately. But it turns out, record companies didn't want to touch possible religious controversy with a 10-foot pole. Lloyd Webber and Rice were rejected. Then their manager approached MCA. And surprisingly, despite the facts, two unknowns pitching a Christ-themed musical rock song for radio, MCA was on board. For one reason above all others. The Who just had major success with Tommy. So rock opera was no longer a crazy idea. So they agreed to finance and release the single. They had a tight budget, but Lloyd Webber blew right past it. He insisted on a top-tier 56-piece symphony orchestra, and not one, but two separate choirs. And in November of 1969, Superstar was released. MCA sent Superstar to every FM radio station in the UK. But most pretended it never arrived. They were afraid of offending listeners and burying themselves in angry hate mail. One record retailer called it possibly the most controversial record ever released, a direct attack on the teachings and beliefs of Jesus Christ. Then the BBC banned the record calling it sacrilegious, and other stations soon followed suit. 
the head of MCA, Brian Brawley, took the brunt of the controversy, industry folk referring to the single as Brian's Folly. But he stayed the course. Then something unexpected happened. In tribute to success. International radio stations started playing their song, including in the United States, and it started developing a cult following. Their plan was kind of working, and with the ultimate hope being to turn the single into a stage production, the next step was to approach theater companies. But their reaction was less than ideal. Lloyd Webber says every single producer they met with in London practically fell down with laughter, calling a musical about Jesus Christ's final days from the perspective of Judas the, quote, worst idea in history. They weathered rejection after rejection. So Rice and Lloyd Webber had no choice but to change their mindsets entirely. Instead of writing for the theater, they should write a rock album, and like the single, hope it would find its cult audience. The album couldn't have dialogue, so the music and lyrics had to carry an entire story. Lloyd Webber says, truthfully, it wouldn't really be an album. It would be a radio play. They'd call it Jesus Christ. The duo wanted only the best associated with the album, so they reached out to Robert Stigwood, an entertainment tycoon best known for managing Cream, the Bee Gees, and most recently, bringing the rock musical Hair to London. But Lloyd Webber says the meeting ended with he and Rice being graciously shown the door. Stigwood later said when he first heard their concept, frankly, it was appalling. Lloyd Webber was offended by Stigwood's snub, but he had an album to craft. They brought on Ian Gillen of Deep Purple as the voice of Jesus and hired several members of the London Philharmonic. They wrote more songs, some five, even seven minutes long, a ballad called I Don't Know How to Love Him, one called Everything's All Right and Heaven on Their Minds, along with their show-stopping single, Superstar until they had in front of them 24 songs. The album was looking like a three-disc release, but MCA drew the line at two, for budgetary and practicality reasons. By this point, they'd blown so far past their budget, Lloyd Webber and Rice had no idea how they were going to recoup the costs. But the head of MCA stood behind the album 100%. He declared that with aggressive promotion, it would be one of the biggest-selling albums in history. Quite the statement. Then they made one last change. They added a word to the album title. On October 27, 1970, Jesus Christ Superstar dropped in the UK and promptly, quote, sunk like a stone. Just eight days after its UK flop, MCA planned an ambitious release for the US. 400 engraved invitations were mailed to media and clergy 
for a release party dubbed The Last Supper at St. Peter's Lutheran Church in New York. And if Jesus Christ's superstar sunk like a stone in England, it took off like a bullet in America. The 87-minute album became a breakout hit through word of mouth and the mighty MCA marketing train. Record retailers couldn't keep it on the shelves. Soon, two and a half million copies sold in the U.S. alone. It soared to number one on the Billboard charts and was nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys. Jesus Christ Superstar became the biggest selling album of 1971, beating Carole King, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, George Harrison, and John Lennon for the number one spot. Then, the number of worldwide albums sold reached 8 million. The phones at MCA's New York office were ringing off the hook, and the director of artist relations got a message labeled urgent. The urgent message was from Robert Stigwood. He said he needed to get in touch with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice immediately. But Lloyd Webber didn't take Stigwood's initial snub lightly, so he ignored the call, and the next one, and the one after that, until Stigwood started sending limousines and champagne. The gifts and messages never stopped coming. Lloyd Webber said the longer they held out, the longer the limos that arrived at their doorstep. When they finally gave in and took Stigwood's call, Rice and Lloyd Webber were flown to the U.S., and Lloyd Webber says they had no idea how big the album had truly become overseas. They practically stepped off the plane and found themselves all over Time magazine. Over caviar in Stigwood's Upper East Side townhouse, the famed entrepreneur apologized for his initial rejection. Hands were shaken, and it was decided Jesus Christ Superstar would go on a national concert tour. Then... Onto the Broadway stage. The National Concert Tour production of the album sold out in all 54 cities across America. 26 performers, 26 musicians, but no staging or sets, just the music. The first stop was the Pittsburgh Arena, where nearly 14,000 people turned up breaking the attendance record set by the show's superstar inspiration, Tom Jones, the year before. The tour was such a success, they eventually had three separate touring companies traveling the country at the same time. Then on October 12, 1971, when Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice were just 23 and 27 years old, Jesus Christ Superstar premiered on Broadway. The show sold $1.2 million in advance ticket sales, making it the most pre-sold show in history up until that time. For the first six weeks, every performance of Jesus Christ Superstar sold out, with the likes of Andy Warhol, Tennessee Williams, and David Frost filling the seats. The New York Times said the show forever changed the relationship between pop records and musical theater. The show was nominated for five Tony Awards, including Best Original Score, and it ran for 711 performances. 
but it wasn't all manna from heaven. Countless groups protested outside the Mark Hellinger Theater. Many felt the production portrayed Judas as a hero. Others said it misrepresented Jesus Christ. Some declared it blasphemous and theatrical sacrilege. Rice said, interestingly, most of the picketers hadn't actually seen the show, and their protests landing on the front pages of newspapers actually led to higher ticket sales. It was banned altogether in South Africa and Hungary. Then, the Vatican made a statement. Amidst the production's worldwide controversy, the Vatican aired the album in its entirety on its radio station. A papal spokesperson adding, Nothing like this has been broadcast on Vatican Radio until now, but we feel this is a work of considerable importance. Then, on August 8, 1972, the show opened in the West End of London, where it would gross 7.5 million pounds and run for eight straight years, breaking the record for longest-running musical in London's illustrious theatre history, launching the Technicolor dream careers of Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber and tipping the show's total earnings over $230 million worldwide, making Jesus Christ Superstar. The play rejected by music labels, impresarios, radio stations, protesters, and entire countries that was once called the worst idea in history, one of the most successful musicals of all time. It's a strange thing. The world is always searching for new ideas. Yet when you present an idea that is so fresh, so unusual, and so unprecedented, the world will greet you with unrelenting rejection. It doesn't look like anything they've seen before. It doesn't sound like anything that's been played before. The reality is the world fears new and favors familiarity. So rejection is a reflex. But it doesn't mean your idea is bad or weak or unworthy. It means it hasn't found the right audience yet. Life shrinks or expands in proportion to your courage. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice had courage. When they were trying to shop their bold Jesus Christ Superstar stage musical, they were rejected at every possible turn. Friends responded with horror and disgust. Talent agents didn't just say no, they called the idea appalling. Theatrical producers called it the worst idea in history. That's big-time rejection. But Lloyd Webber and Rice didn't give up hope. They responded to the adversity by pivoting. Because rejection is information. It shows you what to do next. So they retained their big, fresh idea, but delivered it in a different package by recording a rock album instead. 
Tim Rice said they didn't appreciate it at the time, but doing it on an album made the work itself better, made it shorter, made it more contemporary, made it rock, and most importantly, helped it find its audience. The courage to believe, even when everyone else didn't, made Jesus Christ Superstar one of the milestones in musical history. By conquering that early massive rejection, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice would each go on to write and produce other landmark Broadway hits like Evita, Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Aladdin, and The Lion King. The biggest obstacle you will ever have to overcome is your mind telling you that you won't succeed. If you can overcome that, you can overcome anything. Never, ever give up. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, both he got winners. Both have stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Both inductees into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Both knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. Combined net worth, 1.5 billion. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded remotely this time, not too far from South Kensington, London. The series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We regret to inform you, our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major sources for this episode include... Jesus Christ Superstar, Behind the Scenes of the Worldwide Musical Phenomenon by Ellis Nassour, and Get Onto My Cloud, the Tim Rice Podcast. Others are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on Instagram at apostrophepod. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Jonathan Larson of Rent from Season 3. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by superstar Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.